Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Shawley. I hope you're very well. Uh, do get in touch and let me know where you are listening abroad. You can email me, matt.shawley at times.radio and get you on to do an international edition of our hugely popular quiz, Can You Get to Number 10? We'll get you on the radio. Uh, right, coming up, it's a year ago today that George Floyd uh, died in Minneapolis. We remember him with an old schoolmate of his, Jonathan Veal. And I've also been speaking to David Lammy, uh, Labour's Shadow Justice Secretary, about what's happened in the, the national debate about race, both in America and in the UK, in the 12 months since. Uh, that's coming up in a moment. First, we kick off with our columnist panel. It's Tuesday, so it must be Finkovic. It's Danny Finkelstein and David Aronovich. Some news which has only just come in in the last uh, few uh, minutes. This report into uh, allegation of Islamophobia in the Tory party, uh, which has said that Boris Johnson's comments about women wearing the burqa have, have given an impression the Tories are insensitive to Muslim communities. And in the, the details of the report, Boris Johnson says he now apologises for any offence taken. And he says, would I use some of the offending language in my past writings today? Now that I am Prime Minister, I would not. And in response, the report says, while this could be considered as leading by example, the investigation would like to emphasise that using measured and appropriate language should not be a requirement solely for senior people, but ought to be expected throughout the Conservative Party. And... Um, you know, the details of the report will be picked over and we'll discuss it uh, more, uh, I'm sure. But I was in, just interested in this idea of, is it all right to say something when you're something offensive when you're a journalist, as I'm, you are both journalists, uh, uh, which you wouldn't say um, when inevitably both you and Dan, Danny and David become Prime Minister? What, what do you sort of make of this, <laughs> this argument, Danny? <laughs> I don't agree with it. I mean, I don't, I, I, obviously, it's impossible to sort of distinguish what I would say if I was prime minister. Uh, but, uh, but uh, you know, I didn't think it was an appropriate thing to say at the time. It's never been my style, particularly what um, Boris uh, did in the Telegraph. And I didn't really approve of it when he did it. Um, and I'm glad they've done a report that's critical about these things. They've got a lot of work to do. Uh, the Conservative Party's got a lot of work to do. I was very much for having this report. I'm really pleased they've published it, and I'm really pleased it doesn't look, from my initial view of it, to to be a report that tells them they're doing fine because there is a really, you know, there is a serious problem that has to be tackled. So it looked to me like quite a well judged report from what I've uh, read. He can't remove what he wrote in those articles, um, but he shouldn't have written them. I don't. I think it's as straightforward as that. Uh, and and there are. And, I, you know, I think that when I write. But, you know, I've made other, I've made other mistakes. So these are mistakes um, and people have to move, you know, to move on from them. I'm glad he recognises that they, that's what they are. What do you think, David? Um, 
as ever, I prize Boris Johnson's sincerity, and I'm sure he's absolutely <laughs> giving it to you straight when he says that he really regrets having done it and all the other things in the past which are like it that he's done and regretted and then gone on to do something else. Um, uh, you know, it, it, it's always... Uh, what, what is it sometimes said about people? They're sincere at the moment when they say the thing that they say. Um I don't think Boris Johnson can even be accused of that, really. And I'm not, I'm not joking. I'm not trying to make a kind of horrible point about it. Um, he was paradoxically, as we know, trying to argue against something like a burqa ban and so on. So he was trying to be liberal. And in order to draw possibly some of his more hmm, questionable supporters with him, he felt it necessary to make that joke maybe because they would appreciate it and come on to his argument. And that probably tells you what the real problem here is, which is that there will be a section of the Conservative Party, there always has been, which is no great friend to having people of different faiths and different hues in the country. It's a less sized group than it used to be back in the old days of the Smethwick by-election and all that kind of stuff. Um, uh, but nevertheless, it's definitely there. It's interesting, actually, because in his uh, sort of uh, speaking to the uh, Professor Singh who carried out the report, Boris Johnson said, I do know offence has been taken at things I've said, that people expect a personalised position to get things right. But in journalism, you need to use language freely. So he's not actually even saying he regrets doing it. He's just saying that he wouldn't do it now uh, if he was Prime Minister. <laughs> you need to use language freely. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> he was already in politics. It's important to notice he was in politics um, when he did it. Yes, um, he's not, you know, a, he's not a teenager he's a, who's had some old tweets dug up from his dim and distant yeah, look, past. I think, I think you've got to judge. I think it, the appropriate reaction to this particular, you know, every comment is different. Um, yeah. And this, the particular reaction to this is to say it was a, a mistake and an unacceptable one one that is important in cultural terms in the Conservative Party that the Conservative Party needs to address. And that is that is about right. I don't really see what else can be said about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I don't think he should attempt to say one should use language freely um, because actually one uses language reason, you know, with reason. One uses language carefully to say the things that one means. And so, um, you know, but I think given what he said... It's reasonable for say for him to say it was a mistake, he regrets it, and he wouldn't do it again, and it's right for us to say he shouldn't, and that's probably, probably as much as you can say. Yeah, yeah. So this, um, the, the, the investigation it looked at lots of cases. It also looked at the, um, the unsuccessful mayoral campaign of Zach Goldsmith when he ran against uh, Sadiq Khan in 2016. Uh, the report said uh, that uh, Zach Goldsmith accepts poor judgment in the way his campaign was conducted, but falsely denied harbouring anti-Muslim sentiments or using such sentiments for political advantage. Uh, the report said these uh, cases, both Zach Goldsmith and Boris Johnson, give the impression to many that the party and its leadership are insensitive to Muslim communities. He's, uh, uh, the author of the report said, I'm not saying that the party leadership is insensitive to Muslim communities, I'm saying that the perception is very strong. Uh, and they found that anti-Muslim sentiment at local association and individual levels uh, too. Uh, but let's, I tell you what, let's move on uh, from that. Some other breaking news that's come in this morning. Someone's writing a book about Keir Starmer. Uh, uh, it's going to be called A Life of Contrasts. Apparently it's going to uh, take us behind this complex leader and include the girlfriends and his country roots, apparently. Um, Danny, you've read an awful... In fact, you've read a biography of every single Prime Minister, haven't you? You, you have finished... Yes, we've talked yes. about that before. Are you, are you, are you uh, salivating at the idea of a biography about Keir Starmer? Well, look, 
I tell you what, biographies of people who are living are never that great. Um, and I mean, there are exceptions. Walter Isaacson's book on Henry Kissinger is brilliant. But generally speaking, they're not that great. Um, and uh, you, but, but usually, I, I'm certain I will read this because usually you do pick up some things that are of use. Uh, you know, that was true of Rosa Prince's book on Theresa May. I, I did find it was a large part of it because it was done quite quickly was what's dismissed as a cuttings job but cuttings jobs are actually quite hard to do and I'm glad that she did it because it was useful to gather all that information in one place so I'm not expecting a massive revelation but I suppose that if someone has taken the trouble to read all of Keir Starmer's uh, previous speeches to review his period as uh, DPP and all that it you know, I don't dismiss that exercise. It's not going to be um, the last word on Keir Starmer. It's not going to be great political uh, literature, probably, and it's not going to be um, hugely, uh, hugely important um, in the long term. But it will be valuable, and I'm certain I'll, I'll, I'll read it. David, are you, is this on your Christmas wish list? Country roots take me home <laughs> to the place <laughs> I belong. Stoke Poges, mountain mama. I mean. Uh, you can tell I'm not quite as enamoured of political biography as Danny, which is more or less to say that I don't think I've ever read one all the way through, uh, not of a contemporary political figure. Uh, and certainly, I, I, I mean, I, there is questionable value, in my opinion, to books about people who are still alive. Um, because it's very, very difficult to get people to talk truthfully uh, about them. And, and, and after all, what is it that you're trying to discover? And what is it that they're trying to tell you uh, about this? I mean, I do remember, you know, colleagues down the years getting into their biographies of, what was it, Michael Gove wrote one of Michael Portillo, didn't he? I mean, it's, like, it's, it's a classic. Everybody's read it, haven't they? I mean, you've got a copy, <laughs> haven't you, Danny? You've got a copy of that. and you've got. I have. Read. I did read I, it, I of course. But I, I think the idea of someone like Michael Gove wasting his time, or maybe he didn't waste it, maybe he found out things, maybe it taught him things which were useful for his subsequent political career. But I think for the rest of us... Um, I think we're content to look at the reviews, if that, um, see what they tell us and then move on. Um, uh, there's a journalist called James Hill, who's pointed out on uh, Twitter this morning that uh, Nigel um, Cawthorne, who's uh, writing the book, has previously his previous works include Sex Lives of the Great Dictators. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I've just been clicking through his... Um, Nazi Wives, uh, is that one of his? No, he has done uh, Barbara Windsor, the biography of the irrepressible Babs as well. Uh, something about football. I mean, he's very prolific. He seems to have written an awful lot. Um, okay. uh, so, and uh, okay. he's also done one on uh, Tyson Fury and uh, public executions. So make of that what you will. For Barbara Matt, who, Windsor does, does it say who the publisher is? Does it say who the publisher uh, is? Let's have a look. Let's have a look. It is... Uh, Gibson Square. Okay. Right. Um, Not Penguin then. Previous, previous. Pa- oh, this is on the Amazon. Previous page. Previous praise for Nigel Cawthorn. Guardian says galloping, and the Sunday Times says excruciating. Uh, so anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Very strange thing to put on your Amazon page. Well, like, is there nothing that Keir Starmer can do to kind of prevent this and say, look, I'm going to take out an injunction on you because I'm only going to have somebody of moderate seriousness in my biography? <laughs> well, I, I hope that I, I like the idea you might just copy and paste a, yeah, a whole chunk from one of his old books because knowing that nobody's going to read it, there'll be a whole chapter I, on I, Keir Starmer's starving, rolling, carry on camping. It... Go on, Danny. I think it's highly unlikely 
that someone will put together all that information, however eccentric their uh, milieu, uh, without providing something that's of use and uh, and 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 <laughs> providing some sort of insight. And Is so this... I just don't agree. I don't agree. <laughs> I mean, you, 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 with David on this, I, you do find out a lot from reading biography because politics consists of people. And um, reading about them is um, helpful in understanding what happens. So I think I'm, I'm bound to learn something about Keir Starmer from somebody even quite artlessly putting <laughs> the uh, material so, together. Somebody's also pointed out, some... it's, it's called, the book is going to be called A Life of Contrast, which is also the title of the autobiography of Diana Mitford, uh, in which she uh, tells the story of her marriage to Oswald Mosley. So that's something. That's a, that's a, that's another uh, link which I'm sure Keir Starr will be delighted about. But it does bring us to something else we were going to talk about this morning. Before I start just throwing breaking news at you, uh, and that's Max Mosley. Um, what what should we? Is he more than his father's son? I think is a question we we were going to ask David. Well, it was very interesting. The, 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 the BBC sports guy on the radio this morning, I know you don't listen to BBC radio because you're too busy to listen to time. I don't time think it's on anymore. I might do. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, the, the, what, what dregs are still on uh, and not presented by me um, uh, were dealing with uh, Max Mosley, the sports guy, and he was talking to Bernie Eccleston, and he clearly didn't want to say anything about Max Mosley's political past. He wanted to kind of get beyond it uh, and said, you know, he was a lawyer, wasn't he? He was a really clever man. Is this what he'd be remembered for? And Bernie Eccleston said at the end, I'm afraid you'll be remembered being Oswald Mosley's son. <laughs> and the guy had been trying to avoid this all the way through because I think he thought maybe Bernie Eccleston would take him down for saying it and so on. Um, it's really interesting because I wrote about this three years ago. Um, uh, when Max Mosley took his case against the News of the World, it came up in court 2008. And the opposing uh, barrister brought up the question of Mosley's own past, because when he was in, 2000, uh, in 1961, I think it was, at a by-election, um, he was the ca agent for the candidate for the union movement, which was Mosley's uh, fascist party at the time. And um, it was brought up that there was a leaflet which said that coloured immigrants bought leprosy, syphilis and TB, and Mosley said in court, this is absolute nonsense. And then, a couple of years ago, the leaflet was found and it said, there is no medical check on immigration, tuberculosis, VD and other terrible diseases like leprosy are on the increase. Coloured immigration threatens your children's health. And at the bottom, named as publisher, was Max Mosley. Now, the point about this was that Max Mosley had denied that this was something that he had done when he could have said, I did do it, but it was, and it was a terrible thing to do, and I'm very sorry. Despite that, he probably had repented in his head, but he actually hadn't gone on record to say, I was badly wrong then. I was young, it was terrible, and I'm sorry for it. What do you think, Danny? I, I think you're being too generous. I don't think he did repent in his head. I, I think it's. I think um, he never really disavowed what he did, uh, supporting his father. Um, he he tried to isolate his brother for um, for being as critical as as he was of Oswald Mosley. He was, you know, a monster actually. Um, and um, I think these relationships are very difficult. Um, my, my mother did a, a, a um, had a meeting because my mother was a concentration camp survivor and met. Hilda Speer, Albert Speer's daughter, uh, and took very much the view that um, that Hilda Speer wasn't to blame. She did a radio programme with her and did take the view very much that Hilda Speer was not to blame for her father's crimes. But that was on the basis that Hilda Speer um, disavowed her father's crimes mm. and um, 
albeit that Oswald Basie's crime was to support these activities rather than commit the crimes himself. Oswald Mosley and uh, Max Mosley didn't disavow that. In fact, he went on protecting that legacy and he has to be judged for that. So it's not unfair in his particular case to judge him you know people take different views nicholas frank has taken uh, the view that um, that uh, that his father uh, should have been hanged at nuremberg correctly and um whereas the view um that uh, you know otto vector's son takes is that otto vector uh, in it was one of the people who committed nazi crimes in poland uh, was a goodie not a baddie you know people have the moral responsibilities for their reactions and i think he has to take moral responsibility for his which was to defend his father Danny Finkelstein and David Obanovich Den. Of course, you can read both in the Times every week. Danny on a Wednesday, David on a Thursday. Just pick up a copy of the paper or subscribe online. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, we remember George Floyd. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. You're listening to the Red Box podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Yes, yeah, so today marks a year since George Floyd was killed by police officer Derek Chauvin in Minneapolis. And the year that followed, anti-racism protests swept the globe and issues of racial justice have been brought to the front of many people's minds. Here in the UK, George Floyd's death led to, led to a summer of Black Lives Matter protests and reignited a national conversation about our history and how we examine links to slavery. In a moment, we are going to remember the man, though, at the centre of all of this, George Floyd, by speaking to one of his uh, former school friends, Jonathan Veal, about uh, how he heard the news, uh, his reaction to the what's uh, unfolded over the past year, and uh, how he and his friends uh, plan to mark uh, the anniversary today. Uh, but I've, uh, but before that, I've been speaking to Labour's Shadow Justice Secretary, David Lammy, about what Labour says uh, needs to be done to tackle racial injustice in the UK, and I asked him what was in his mind, first of all, on the first anniversary of George Floyd's death. Well, the starting point is to remember that a family lost their son, brother, cousin, um, and thinking about the many black African-Americans who've lost their lives, but globally, whether you're in London or in Paris, the real concerns about those that die um, as a result of police action. And how did you find out what had happened? When was the first time that you sort of heard the news and and then obviously it snowballed, but but what what sort of went through your mind? Can you remember what happened a year ago? Well, what I remember is that all of us, weren't we, we were sort of at home during our lockdown and globally during the lockdown, this peculiar thing that we'd never experienced before, We were glued to the TV set. We were glued to social media because we were discovering and understanding what this pandemic was about. And obviously, all of us were horrified at the loss of life that was taking place across the country. And then there was this interruption, and it was George Floyd dying in nine minutes 
and 26 seconds before our eyes. And it was just heartrending, absolutely heartrending and unbelievable. And I suppose my overwhelming sense was of um, disgust, really, heartrending concern, really, across our family WhatsApp groups. And uh, so like so many other people, it, it really sort of disturbed the soul and set something off. And it set something off uh, both in America and then around the world and Black Lives Matter, the usual uh, word, ricocheting around the world. Were you surprised? Because sadly, actually, the situation, what happened to George Floyd, is not unique in the history of American policing. Uh, were you surprised by the way that it um, it did ricochet around the world, heartened that, that suddenly people were having conversations which hadn't been had? Well, look, I think, as I say, the pandemic had something to do with that because people were not at work, they were at home, and they could not look away, I think, from those scenes. And I think it had been a catalyst. It's been a catalyst for conversations. It's certainly been a catalyst for millennial and Generation Z protesting, this is white and black. And I think it's coined this new phrase of allyship, uh, which is white people actually getting into the issues and recognizing that black communities, wherever they are, are tired, hugely tired of the same old conversation about the existence of systemic racism, but a lack of action. And here in the UK, I think there have been a number of inquiries and reviews, which including my own. And there's a call now to implement them, to get on with the action. But it's right to say, and it is important to say this, that my sense is that organisationally there are companies, businesses, charities looking to do more in the diversity and inclusion space in their organisations, setting up black action plans. And it's important to recognise all that work that is going on as a catalyst result of the murder of George Floyd. Just remind us, as you talked about your review, you're a Labour MP who was asked by a Conservative Prime Minister, David Cameron, to carry out a review. Uh, remind us what you found, and, you know, as several years and Prime Minister's on now, uh, where we are in t terms of trying to address some of the issues that you raised. Well, the first thing is to acknowledge that David Cameron created this bipartisan moment by asking me to lead a review on the criminal justice system, and, it's, and that's against the backdrop in which this government has set itself on a very, very different course. In my review, I raised real concerns about the amount of young people in our youth uh, juvenile prison system, and I'm afraid it's worrying that that figure's got worse. 53% of young people coming from a black, Asian or minority ethnic background in our prisons. I raised some concerns about our judiciary, so unrepresentative of the population it serves, and I said that the government should set a target um, and I'm afraid they've turned away from that target. I raised issues about the way in which um, conflict was dealt with in prisons, the way in which access to employment was granted to prisoners. Um, and um, I raised some problems with the youth justice system and community justice. So there were a range of issues. The government has implemented parts of the review, but we haven't seen a systemic sort of response to the review. And in fact, I would say that today I would go further because the figures have got worse, not better. Uh, and what about the most recent review by uh, the government under Boris Johnson? Well, I mean, look, I, I don't think you can easily expect implementation of any review if the review does not command the respect across the political divide. And the truth is the Sewell um, 
report has no friends. I mean, I, yesterday, I think Liz Truss struggled to articulate anyone that came to the defence of the review, apart from a few folk in number 10. And so what would, you, what would the Labour Party, you're now the Shadow Justice Secretary uh, in the Labour Party under Keir Starmer, what would you like to see happening to address some of the you know, long-standing issues that we've talked about? And also, you know, given the, the, the national conversations happened in the last year? The first thing is implement the reviews and get serious about that. The next thing is we've said that there does need to be uh, further race legislation. Uh, we've got to deal with these systemic issues. We've got to deal with the curriculum in schools. We've got to deal with the lack of ethnic minorities and senior positions across society. There are issues still in the criminal justice system, and my review speaks to that. So Labour's been clear that we would have a comprehensive plan centred around new legislation on race equality, doubling down on the issues of systemic racism because there's a lot more that we can do in our country and also being prepared to deal with the issues in our curriculum particularly so that young people right across the country, white and black, understand why we have the diversity we have and understand and, and, and the, the warts and all aspects, particularly of our colonial period in our history. That's been a big part of the debate. The one other thing I wanted to ask you, because this seems to come up an awful lot when people are discussing Keir Starmer as your, your leader, is the taking the knee um, and the taking the knee in his office. And some people uh, use it as a thing to criticise him with somebody who actually take the mickey out of him doing it in his office in the way that he did. Do you think he was right to have done it? Is it something that you've done? Well, I think the starting point is to remember that black communities all over the world have taken the knee and see that as a significant gesture of solidarity. In our own country, the black community makes up 4% of Britain. Um, we should never, ever take the mickey or disparage um, a symbol that's become associated with 4% of the population. That's just not the correct way in which one should behave in a civilised country. Uh, but uh, clearly, this is more than just gesture. The call now is for action, and that's why Keir Starmer's been absolutely clear that the Labour Party would legislate in this area and we would have a Race Equality Act. Is it something that you've done, taking the knee? It is something that I've done, yes. And where, where, have, you, where have you done that? I, I did, it, done it, did it at the moment, I think it was shortly after the murder of George Floyd, where it became a, a, you know, a popular yeah. thing to do. Uh, and when I've been in circumstances where it's felt appropriate and others around me, have done it and see it as a significant gesture from me as someone who is pretty recognised in public life. Uh, that was David Lammy, Labour's Shadow Justice Secretary, speaking to me earlier on uh, this morning. In a moment, we're going to uh, hear from Jonathan Veal, a school friend of George Floyd, about how he remembers his friend uh, and how the last year has been for him. Now, today marks a year exactly since George Floyd was killed by the police officer Derek Chauvin in Minneapolis. We, a moment ago, we heard from Shadow Justice Secretary David Lammy about tackling uh, systemic injustice here in the UK. But let's focus now on, on the man himself, on George Floyd. Uh, last night, I caught up with Jonathan Veal, uh, his school friend uh, of George Floyd, and I began by asking him when they first met. I met Floyd when we were 12 years old, sixth grade, junior high school. Uh, he, he was just one of those guys that just had a magnetic personality. Uh, if you would poll... You know, all the, the students that were in that in that school building and all of our teammates that played either basketball or football with him, um, they probably would say that, th that he was their best friend. He, he just had that personality. He, 
that made you feel welcome, that made you feel like you were important, that you were noticed. Uh, he was a jokester. He always tried to keep the mood light. Uh, he didn't like um, tense or uh, a heavy situations. So I'll give you an example. So during our high school football career, we from the, from the ninth grade to the 12th grade, we only lost a total of seven football games. Wow. Uh, but when we did lose a football game, uh, he would allow us from uh, the stadium locker room to our high school locker room just to reflect on that game and to to think about you know some of the mistakes we've made. But as soon as we got to the high school locker room, he either say something or do something that would just break the ice. And we would forget about that football game and remember that we're teenagers and we would go to you know, a local fast food place and just have fun once again. So he sounds like a good guy. And obviously, you know, and you grew up and you you left town, I think. And you, you so you weren't sort of all living in the same town, but you kept in touch with him. Correct. Yeah. So um, there's probably, I would say after college, there was probably about a maybe an eight to 10 year window where our conversations and communication were very, very uh, few and far between. Um, but back in 2013 uh, was when our, our relationship really began to reconnect once again. And you can do that, you know, with technology and social media. You, that's how you that's how you can keep in touch. I can think of yeah, the of- advancement of, of, of technology definitely uh, helped our, in our relationship. Me, um, you know, living out of state uh, from where we grew up at, it definitely helped that. And so tell me about the last time you you saw him or heard from him. What was your most recent sort of connection? Uh, so the last time I saw him was in 2013. Uh, we were just celebrating um, our 20th um, high school uh, reunion. Um, so it wasn't that weekend. It was a couple of weekends after that. Uh, we crossed paths and I hadn't seen him in a while. Um, just kind of asked, hey, where you been? And so he had he informed me that he had just been incarcerated and just been released. And so I was like blown away. I was like, what? Wow. And so um, didn't, didn't really dwell on that. Just happy to see my friend who I hadn't seen in a while. Um, but the last time I actually communicated with him was uh, January of 2020. Uh, right. My birthday's in January. So uh, he sent me a, a text message, um, wished me a happy birthday. And then we just kind of went back and forth and reliving some some high school memories and just some of the crazy uh, things that we did in high school. Um, and then he informed me that he he was in uh, he was in uh, Minneapolis uh, with a, uh, a work program and his uh, his faith had been renewed and uh, he's working on a, a certification. Um, and he just told me that he was proud of me. And so after high school, we stopped referring to each other by our names and we referred to each other by our high school jersey numbers. So he wore number 88 and I wore number 42. So he signed off that text message by saying, uh, with love from 88 to 42. Uh, so that was the last communication that I had with him. Okay, so then let, let's come to like this time last year then. How did you first find out what had happened? So it was, it was late in the afternoon, uh, I guess about 7, 7.30. And then uh, all of a sudden on my phone, I get a CNN alert uh, that a man had died in the custody of, of police. And then an image pops up and it really wasn't clear um, in the image. So I, didn't, I couldn't recognize who it was, but I was just sad. I was just like, no, not again. How could this happen again? Uh, so just kind of moved, moved on from that. But that night I could not uh, rest well, just kind of, tossing and turning most of the night. When I wake up, I get another CNN alert and they say uh, Minnesota, no, man that died in, in uh, police custody has been 
identify as a Minnesota uh, resident, George Floyd. And I was like, whoa. So I began to, to, to just really uh, hope and pray that um, it wasn't my friend because they said Minnesota. So I was like hoping there was another guy. It's a big place. Uh, yeah, a big place, you know, that, that had the name of George Floyd. And then probably about an hour later, uh, my social media feed uh, really just started blowing up. And then there was a picture associated uh, with, with the name. And I just, it was like a ton of bricks that just kind of fell on me um, at that moment. And then uh, another guy was a childhood friend. Um, I picked up the phone and called him. And uh, there was probably about a, a 60 second delay in words not being exchanged, just a quiet moment. And I said, is this real, man? This is real. He said, man, this is, this is real. I said, that's Floyd. And he said, yeah, that's Floyd. Uh, and so I was actually, on, I was en route to, to my office and I got here and I just, I couldn't collect my thoughts. I was, I couldn't be productive at work. And so uh, uh, I literally went home and uh, engaged in a conversation with my wife and said, hey, had, had you heard about what happened in, in, in Minneapolis and the guy that, that died in, in uh, police custody? And she said, I vaguely heard about it. And um, I, I tried to, to communicate to her that that was my friend. And I couldn't even get the word friend out before I broke down emotionally and started crying. Um, even right now, it's even emotional, just kind of, of thinking course. about that, that moment and communicating yeah. to my wife. Um, and then I have two boys, two sons that were in our house. And as I was pulling up the video to show my wife, they came over my shoulders and began to watch. And they, they were just kind of horrified to see um, the, the lack of response in, in police to, to what was happening. So, yeah, that's how I found out. And it's clearly, you know, it's a really personal thing for you. And it's, you know, clearly entirely understandable that you're, you're emotional even now. You know, you've lost a friend. But then how, how was it in the days and weeks and months that followed the way that, you know, really personal thing for, you know, friends and family of George Floyd, um, then this becoming this huge global thing. Did that help? Did it make it harder for you? Well, how's, it, how's it sort of been for you and his friends? Yeah, so in, initially um, I struggled um, because I started getting you know, media requests because I made a, uh, I went to my, my, uh, my Facebook page and I, I, I posted some pictures for uh, when we, we grew up and I posted, hey, this is my friend. And I guess some media outlets began to get wind of it here locally and then um, um, you know, uh, across the nation and I started getting all these media requests. And I, I, I really was kind of you know, indecisive in what to do. Um, because uh, I didn't want to, um, you know, share. I didn't know. I didn't know how to share and what to share. Um, and I, I didn't know if it would, you know, bring honor to him or what. What you know, how how it would be taken. Uh, but then I had a friend, you know, say, "Hey, you know, think about, um, you know, how how what what Floyd meant to you," and that kind of gave me a peace of mind to say, "Hey, I want to share what this guy meant to me." Um, and not to let the media shape the narrative. One of the narratives that would, would quickly came was that he resisted arrest. <laughs> and I knew uh, growing up, like one of the things we always said that, hey, if we ever engage uh, or, you know, with law enforcement, or we, we were gonna be respectful, we're, we're going to be accommodating with it. We were not gonna resist arrest because we don't know what's gonna happen. Um, and obviously if you watched the, the video in its entirety, you saw that he did not res resist arrest he was more than respectful to, to the officer. 
Um, so I began to share, and it was actually um, helping me um, grieve um, in sharing the story about my friend. Um, but it was it was difficult to see my friend who who I knew well and was just an average guy. He wasn't a flamboyant guy. I didn't seek you know attention. His his face and likeness has gone global. But then it helped me to go back to a conversation that we had. Uh, so we were 17. Um, our senior year in high school was now about to uh, uh, take place in the next next school year. And we were having this conversation uh, about, you know, what, what was going to take place. So got, some of the guys talked about going into the workforce. Some guys talked about going to the military. Some guys talked about going to college. Um, but then Floyd makes this comment that that really stuck out with me once his uh, his likeness you know started going global. He said, "Hey, I'm going to be big. I'm going to touch the world." And we're you know we're 17. You know he was an exceptional <laughs> football player. He was a exceptional basketball player. So in that like we were thinking, okay, maybe you know the NBA or the NFL. And so, but we moved on from the conversation. But then as his likeness and his name started going global, that that conversation came to mind and just really was blown away. Now just like this is actually happening. Um, obviously not in the respect or light that we have wanted, but it's actually taking place. And one year on then, as you mark a year since his, his death, how do you think that, you know, he has touched the world and brought about change? Has has America changed? I believe uh, there, there are um, steps that are being placed. Um, as I've been really articulating this, I think it's going to be a, a twofold attack that can take place on a macro level and then a micro level. But I think the micro level is going to be more impactful than the macro level. So obviously, from a macro level, there's legislation that is, you know, being drafted. Um, I think it's the George Floyd, you know, uh, justice bill that's that's making its way. Um, so that's the macro level. But I, I think um, on a on a grassroots level, on a micro level, I think as individuals um, and local law enforcement take take personal responsibility. So what I've been able, what I've been saying is that I think that um, we need to have a heightened um, appreciation for human life. Um, you know, obviously you're across the pond and I'm here in the States, um, but I should have a, a heightened level of care concern for your well-being. Um, and so I think if that happens uh, more and more on a micro level, it will affect the macro. Um, same thing with law enforcement. I think if law enforcement, when they, when they go into communities, if they see... Uh, the individuals living in that community as people and not, and, you know, not, you know, potential suspects or projects. Um, I think um, that relationship between law enforcement and community will, will, will grow deeper and stronger. And so um, I think if, if those twofold effects take place on a micro level, like I said, it'll, it'll affect the macro level. And we'll begin to see the, the change that we're looking to see as a result of Floyd's uh, murder. And how, how would you felt about Black Lives Matter? How do you feel about Black Lives Matter? Because it's become this huge global sort of movement and campaign across across the world. But how does it resonate with you? Is it is it now sort of distinct to, to what happened to Floyd? Yeah, you know, I, I think, you know, I've had this question is, you know, question, you know, uh, posed to me, like, why, why, is, why is this so amplified? Why is this so now prevalent? And I said, because for so long, it's, it's been seen in uh, not only the, the country of America, but across the world, uh, you know, through slavery and, and through uh, things like that, that, um, you know, African-Americans or people of color or Blacks, um, their lives have not mattered. They've been treated more like 
um, uh, you know, animals or uh, less than than um, the greater society. And so now I think because um, you know people uh, who uh, who are not um, you know persons of color or black are seeing that and it's starting to resonate with them because of how Floyd was treated. Absolutely. And so finally, then, how are you going to mark the day? How will you remember remember your friend? It's it's been difficult. I've been thinking, uh, you know, it's less than 24 hours for when it's going to happen. And um, I, I know a, a group of myself and some classmates and childhood friends, we're going to we're going to get together. I, I'm not in Houston, but we're going to get a we have a Zoom call scheduled that we can communicate with one another and just kind of celebrate his life. I think that's the biggest thing is to, to the way we're going to market is celebrate uh, the, the man uh, because we know him so well. I know a lot of people want to celebrate the movement. But, but those who really knew him, uh, those of us who really knew him, we're going to celebrate the man, and uh, we're going to we're going to tell stories. We're going to share good memories. Uh, uh, we're going to pull up pictures, those types of things. Uh, and uh, you know, hopefully, by doing that, we we can continue to have some level of of, of closure in what happened to him, and continue to think about the, the great memories that we we had with with Floyd. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 